Hello, K-Squid listeners. It's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. What do you know about CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, passed in 1970 and signed into law by then-Governor Ronald Reagan? For more than 50 years, CEQA has been used to inform decision-makers and the public about the potential environmental impacts of proposed projects. But in recent years, it has been applied to situations for which it was not designed, especially new housing development. In response, both Governor Newsom and the state legislature are seeking to amend the law to prevent various activists and opponents from obstructing new housing. Not so fast, say the law supporters. They point to a recent report by the Rose Foundation that CEQA has had little, if any, impact on housing projects across the state. So, who is correct? My guest today to talk about CEQA is Professor Deborah Sivas, who is Luke W. Cole Professor of Environmental Law at the Stanford Law School, where she's also Director of the Environmental Law Clinic and the Environmental and Natural Resources Law and Policy Program. Her current research is focused on the interaction of law and science in the arena of climate change and coastal marine policy and the ability of the public to hold policymakers accountable. Professor Deborah Sivas, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, Why don't we start at the beginning? Um, What do you do at Stanford, precisely, and how did you end up there? Yeah, so so I am officially a professor of environmental law at Stanford Law School, and I also have an appointment in the new School of Sustainability. Um, But I've pretty much worked my entire legal career in the environmental field, Um, and actually started out as a biology major and then was in graduate school in ecology and kind of switched over to the social science side and went to law school, but knew I wanted to work on environmental issues and have done that pretty much my entire career. Hmm. And um, was there anything in particular that led you into environmental law? No, it was it was a really different landscape when I was, uh, you know, when I was young and uh, I I grew up in Southern California. And I always say that uh, if you grow up down there, you're either completely oblivious to environmental issues or keenly aware of them. And so uh-huh. I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and smog was a huge issue. We had, you know, pesticides were an issue, coastal development. Um, so I guess I ended up on that side of the line and that really... Uh, compelled me. I mean, we're in a really different world now, but um, I, I'm I'm glad that across the spectrum, more people are tuned in to environmental issues. Okay. Um, and what does the Environmental Law Clinic do? So a, a, a law clinic is an opportunity for law students to um, actually get some practical experience. So when I went to law school, uh, where there were no clinics. And so you just took classes, you know, regular substantive classes, and then you got out and you didn't know how to do anything. You didn't know anything about practicing law. Um, so these days we have a pretty robust clinical program here at Stanford, as do many uh, law schools. And students get to plug into the clinic. They take the clinic as a class. What's really unique about our program is that when students are in clinic, they're full-time. They don't take any other classes. They just mm-hmm. work in the clinic full-time. Mm-hmm. And they they get to represent real clients. Um, it, our particular clinic represents uh, mostly uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations in environmental and energy issues. And so students get to work on those cases. They interact with the clients. They write briefs. They go to court and argue. Um, write petitions, all that thing. So the the kind of skills that you you need as a practicing lawyer. Mm-hmm. I mean, they actually can go and plead, do do uh, do pleas in court, even yes. though they're not even though they're not licensed. Yeah, so they oh, get certified through the state bar uh, uh-huh. association, and um, and we of course oversee their work. I have a staff of about uh, there's about five of us uh, lawyers, mm-hmm. licensed lawyers. And um, and the students practice under us, you know, very, very uh, uh, circumscribed, but they get to go argue in court, work on briefs, interact mm-hmm. with the clients. So they get to develop those real skills. Well, we're, we're here to talk about CEQA. So why don't we get to that? What exactly is CEQA and what is its mandate? Give us yeah. some, hist- some history of it as you know, as well. 
Yep, for sure. So California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, um, modeled after uh, people, some people have maybe heard of NEPA, which is the federal statute, uh, National Environmental Policy Act. And California uh, adopted a very similar law in 1970, following on the federal law. Um, and the whole idea behind the law is to um, make decision makers at every level of government. So, you know, local government officials, any kind of regional um, organizations, all the way up to the state agencies to, to really think about the um, impact of uh, any proposals that they might approve and really consider those impacts. And then um, think about whether there are ways that are less environmentally destructive to uh, to approving those projects. So it's a it's a dis largely a disclosure law. So it allows the public to make comments and to, and and it requires the agencies to disclose impacts. But it also is meant to make the agencies stop and think before they just uh, approve projects and really think about the the consequences. And and in the early days, it was important around kind of traditional things like air pollution and water pollution, pesticides, all of that. And that's important uh, today, continues to be important. But of course, now we've also got climate impacts and how how uh, projects might affect that. So uh, it remains very important today. Well, I was doing some reading about CEQA and I came upon the California Attorney General's website, <laughs> uh, which said, quote, CEQA requires that state and local agencies disclose and evaluate the significant environmental impacts of proposed projects and adopt all feasible mitigation measures to reduce or eliminate those impacts. Now, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've long been under the impression that the, the purpose of environmental impact statements is to acknowledge that these environmental impacts might take place, right? And the developer or the agency can decide what to do, but it, they're not required. My my sense was they're not required to actually do mitigation. Am I wrong? Yeah, actually in California, it's a little different than the, the national law, NEPA. And let me just step back on, on that one. So at the federal level um, for federal agency actions, NEPA is the statute that applies. And it's a similar statute that requires agencies to really look at the environmental impacts of projects that they might approve or that they might carry out themselves. But the courts have long interpreted NEPA from very early days to be completely procedural. That is, you can, as long as you adequately disclose the impacts, the agency can make any decision it wants and it doesn't have to um, modify the project in any way. So the one, so that's a c entirely procedural statute. The one modification when California um, uh, adopted that model was to say uh, that it was to require agencies to look at potential mitigation for project impacts, and in fact, to adopt mitigation where that mitigation was feasible to adopt and could lessen the environmental impacts. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule because there is a way for an agency to, to escape that um, path by doing something called a statement of overriding consideration. So we're, we, we admit that there's, there's um, you know, significant impacts from this project, but we think there are other reasons to override uh, that concern and actually go forward with the projects. But short of that kind of a statement, the agencies are supposed to mitigate to the extent, you know, feasible and possible to do. So it is, a, there's a little bit of substantive content that the federal law does not have, but the state law has. Okay. Um, I, there, I want to ask a, a, a question about that. So if what I've seen is that private developers are now re are, are making or required to make these uh, environmental impact studies, right? Um, and are they subject to that requirement? Yeah. So the so the way it works is that um, the own CEQA is only triggered where uh, the where an agency, a local, regional, or state agency, has to issue a discretionary decision to approve a project. So for instance, okay. if you're a if you're a, a an individual landowner and you want to build a new house, 
right? And all you need to do is go get building permits and those building permits don't really involve any discretion. You meet the standards, the building code standards. You don't, CEQA does not apply there because there's no discretionary approval. So, so but, but once there is a, some kind of discretionary approval, whether it's a local permit or an air permit or a water permit, Endangered Species Act permit, you know, whatever approval from a government agency that potentially triggers CEQA there. And we can talk about the different categories of CEQA that apply. So that's how private um, parties get pulled in. And if there is a discretionary approval, then then the agency does have to look at mitigation and would have to condition the project on that mitigation unless it finds um, that it's not feasible to do. Mm. Well, and I also read that the CEQA is a self-executing statute, um, which of course sounds puzzling uh, <laughs> since it has no agency of its own. But what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I think that just means that um, every agency has to comply. So yes, unlike you know the California Air Resources Board, which oversees air quality, right? The CEQA applies across the board, as I said, to every agency that would be um, making some discretionary decisions. So in, in that sense, every agency has to make sure that it's complying with the law and, and the law applies whether or not you've actually got citizens out there who are concerned about it. Um, it, it just applies in every instance. And as you probably know, there is citizen enforcement, which I will talk about, I'm sure. Um, but even without citizen enforcement, that every agency is supposed to make a determination at the beginning of the approval process whether CEQA is triggered, and if so, what level of review uh, it needs to conduct. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Professor Deborah Sivas of the Stanford Law School, who is uh, works on environmental law and various related topics, and is also director of the Environmental Law Clinic at Stanford. And we're talking about CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, which was passed in 1970 and then signed into law by Ronald Reagan. Um, those were the days, weren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so um, you, you, you mentioned something about citizen, um, what was the term? Citizen enforcement. Enforcement. Right. So, mm -hmm. okay, how does that work? What does that mean then? So uh, so all, one of the things about CEQA is it's a very transparent and um, kind of public-oriented statute, so disclosure to the public, and there, there are processes that go along with that, depending on the level of review that's necessary, but um, where the public can weigh in during, uh, during the agency's consideration if they're going through the CEQA process, there's usually an ability to, for the public to comment. And then once the agency has made a decision and issued the approval, um, the, uh, the any member of the public uh, that has participated in the process, uh, uh, the review process by doing comments or showing up at a public hearing, that kind of thing, um, could then uh, bring a judicial challenge that says, agency, you did not do enough uh, to comply with the requirements of CEQA. So that's that's what you hear about a lot in the news is these CEQA lawsuits. They're generally brought um, by, uh, they can be brought by communities, you know, citizens in the community, NGOs, actually private business actually brings a lot of those lawsuits too. You don't hear too much about that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, though, and then the court will look at what the agency did and determine whether it was adequate to comply with full disclosure under CEQA. Well, and now, so does that mean that, let's say plaintiffs bring a case, right? They file a lawsuit mm -hmm. and the courts file in their favor. Um, is then mitigation required? Right. I mean, they, they, they find that that indeed there was a failure to to take into consideration a particular you know, aspect, uh, environmental aspect uh, that has to be addressed. Does that mean then that the agency or developer does have to apply mitigation? Yes. So um, it, if a court finds that, so there's a couple of things that a court might find. One is that the review 
uh, they just didn't do the right level of review. And I, mm -hmm. we could talk about that. There's kind of these more abbreviated reviews in California. The term is negative declarations. Um, but or do they have to do a full blown environmental impact report, which is a bigger document? Um, so some sometimes there's a challenge that says, oh, you just did the abbreviated version, but this is a very significant impact that could have potentially big big uh, impact, you know, consequences. And so you should have done a more robust EIR, environmental impact report. Um, so sometimes that's a challenge. Sometimes the challenge is, well, you did an EIR, but you did not adequately consider traffic um, concerns or, uh, you know, uh, air pollution impacts or whatever it is. And the courts will look at that and decide, you know, was enough done or not. Um, so that's another kind of challenge. And then the third kind of challenge is that you didn't adopt the mitigation and you didn't show that it wasn't feasible to do mitigation or that you um, there were overriding considerations here. And so you need to actually uh, adopt the mitigation and make it as a condition of the project. So those are all different ways that citizens might um, or anyone might challenge the adequacy of what the agency did in terms of complying with CEQA. Who enforces that decision or that, you know, command? <laughs> well, that, that, that's a good question. So um, the, the way these suits work is whoever is challenging, they call the petitioner, right. will file the suit in court and the agency is actually the defendant. So if there's a agency that's issuing a permit, the, um, the, the, the private entity that's receiving the permit is, is called a real party in interest. So they're part of the case, but they're not actually the... Uh, respondent or the defendant in the case. It's actually uh -huh. the agency defending their own action, right? Uh -huh. so you're, you're suing against the agency. So if you win a suit, a court will then issue what's called a writ of mandate and order the agency to um, go back and do more review or do more mitigation analysis or whatever it is that you're, you, you win the lawsuit on. And then the agency has to um, report back to the courts at some point that the court sets to say here, okay, we've done what the, the additional analysis and, and here we're presenting it to the court to, you know, pass uh, muster and we, we want to be now freed from any more responsibility. And then the court will look at that and, and decide whether they've done uh, enough or not to comply. So there is a mechanism for, um, for actually following through on a court order, which is interestingly and different than the federal. If you win a case uh, on NEPA in the federal courts, that's it. And you you hope that the agencies go back and do it. If not, you might have to sue them again. But your your court is your court case is done in California. The courts retain some jurisdiction to make sure the agencies are then doing the proper analysis. Huh. OK, um, you mentioned a negative declaration and, and uh, you said there were several categories of uh, of, of yeah, so IRs the, basically or what yeah so that, yes there actually are a number of different types of EIRs but from the starting from kind of the least to the most um, onerous I guess if you want to think about it that way is uh, so, so first of all there has to be a discretionary action so if there's not actually a discretionary action so sometimes agencies will say this is ministerial it's a building permit or something hmm. and we don't need to do any sequence so that's the least and then built into CEQA, there are a number of exemptions. And in fact, the legislature and the governor have uh, increased those um, exemptions in recent, recent years to uh, cover more affordable housing, infill development, and a number of other things. And so that if, a, if an agency determines that it falls within one of those exemptions, it actually doesn't have to do any, any more review at all. And then the next level is, sorry, the next level is um, a negative declaration where the agency looks at the looks at the um, what impacts the project will have and says they're not going to be significant. So we're just going to go through the checklist. What are the air impacts, water impacts, greenhouse gases, et cetera. And we're going to find that none of them are significant. So we don't have to do any further analysis. So that would be a negative declaration. Then there's something called a mitigated negative declaration, which says, okay, we've looked and maybe there's one category of impacts that could be significant, but we're going to mitigate those to a level of insignificance. And then we're going to issue a mitigated negative declaration. 
And that's the end of what we have to do. So those are all the kind of more abbreviated fashions. If they if there's an impacts that don't appear to be able to be mitigated as part of the project itself, then the agency has to go through a full-blown environmental impact report. Still needs to mitigate once it does that full report, but that's the thing that I think you hear complaints about that that takes, it can take up to a couple of years. Um, and then, so that's a full-blown EIR for a project. And then um, uh, there are ways to, if there's been like, like a general plan, so there's a big EIR done with a general plan that designates land uses in a city or a county. And sometimes you can, what's called tiering off of that and do an, a more abbreviated EIR because you've already covered most of the impacts with the general plan and you're just looking at the specifics of the project. So there's there are those kinds of EIRs too that can be a little more truncated. So there's a whole range, a whole spectrum of um, ways to comply. And those are often the most, con you know, contentious. Did the agency do enough? Should it have done more? Yeah, I want to bring up a local case. Um, the UC campuses are required to do long-range development plans, right, every 10 or 15 years. And then I guess they have to do an EIR on the development plan. And one of the interesting phenomena or features of that is that these long-range development plans rarely get completely fulfilled. So when when there are lawsuits filed against them, they're being filed against a substantial number of elements of the, the plan that will never come to fruition. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, you're filing suit against what is someone's imaginary v v version of what the future looks like. I, I don't think that happens that may happen in, in other general planning. I don't know. i you know, the, the Solano County, uh, case where the uh, investors are are promising to build three model cities, right? Right. And um, I suspect that's not going to happen. But uh, there are, are liable to be all kinds of lawsuits against against these visions. Um, yeah. You go on. So, oh, I was just just a couple of points about that. I think that is right because if you have an EIR, big EIR that's done on a something like a general plan, right? Sprawling. But the the reason that uh, some sometimes those EIRs are challenged is that those general plans say, okay, here we're going to put this kind of activity in this zone and this activity over here, and this is what the criteria mm. are going to be for development. And so one of the things about CEQA is it has a very short statute of limitations, which means the time in which you can um, ch legally challenge it, right? So it it's uh, very different than the federal law, which is um, could be many years later you could challenge an action. In, in CEQA, the idea is you generally you have to challenge it within 30 days. So that's a pretty quick, wow. you know, yeah. agency makes a decision, it's had a process, it's produced some kind of document, NEGDEC, PIR, something. And within 30 days, a petitioner has to challenge or lose their ability to challenge so with a general plan, you have to make a decision, you know, uh, is there something here that really locks in development rights that we would not be able to challenge later? And I think that's the decision that uh, petitioners council often make is, or should we wait for the specific project that comes along? Uh, okay. right? But you, yeah, I see. I see. I, I understand. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Dr. Deborah Sivas from Stanford Law School. We're talking about CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. I have been reading a lot, and I have been hearing a lot about CEQA being an obstruction to new housing, uh, affordable housing, and all kinds of housing. What's, what is that all about? Yeah, well, so there is a, uh, as you as you point out, there's a kind of robust debate that's happening right now. We all know that we have a housing crisis in California. Um, I don't think anyone credibly would deny that. The question is, uh, is CEQA the source or a an, an important source of the problem? And um, and there are uh, a number of um, the analyses and studies out there that are trying have tried to get at this issue and the question is 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 the the availability so the requirement that it agency mostly local government agencies have to go through the CEQA process is that somehow and and then the ability of citizens to challenge 
um, those approvals under CEQA? Is that somehow in, inhibiting uh, the development of new housing that we need? That is the core debate. And there's very strong opinions all around um, and uh, quite different opinions, depending on who you're talking to. So um, it's it, the, the conflict involves a rather strange cast of characters in the sense that you've got NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard, uh, mm -hmm. along with uh, cities and, and some environmental organizations. And then you've got YIMBYs, which is yes in my backyard, right? Which includes also includes cities, residents, developers, conservatives, and some social justice groups. So, um, you know, maybe you can, you can expand a little bit on what the, the conflict is about. And, and I'm wondering, why does CEQA apply to something like, a, would, why would CEQA apply to something like a housing development? Maybe that's the first yeah. question to ask and then, and, you know, and then go to the cast of characters. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so again, I think I used in the beginning, if you're just an individual landowner and you're building your single family house or, your, you know, your, your duplex or whatever on the property, you, CEQA probably does not apply uh, in uniformly local governments, um, you know, there are building code standards as long as you meet them, you know, setbacks from the property and square footage and all of that and all the rules about um, the building codes, you meet that, you're not really getting a discretionary approval. You're just getting sign-offs by the building department and um, CEQA would not apply. When CEQA starts to apply is larger projects. So that's tend to be more the multi-family um, housing units, in addition to just, you know, industrial and commercial developments, where those projects, often cities have um, criteria, but they have a process called the conditional use permit or something similar, where as a developer, you have to go in. Usually, there's usually, if it's a bigger project, there's a lot of working with the planning department in a city or county ahead of time to try to work out all the parameters of that. And and those are usually subject to conditional use permits. So that's a discretionary action that the local government has to approve. And that's the point at which CEQA gets triggered. That's why CEQA gets triggered with these larger development projects. Um, but it kind of depends on what is in the local code and what is required, what's allowed under the building code and what requires that additional layer of uh, discretionary approval. Can you talk a bit about the, the parties, the, these two, these two uh, groups? You know, so as you can imagine, developers have long disliked CEQA, not just in the current housing crisis, but I would say I've been, I've been doing this for a while, you know, way back to the early days of CEQA, because, of course, it's just another regulatory hoop they have to go through, right, mm -hmm. and, um, and opens their project to public scrutiny and, you know, potential challenge. I mean, of course, the point when you think about it from a democracy standpoint is that the public should have a say in how their communities are developing and there shouldn't be sweetheart deals with cities and counties, which I think prior to CEQA, there were a lot of uh, deals like that on the coastal uh, side as well. Um, and that's why we, that's what resulted in the California Coastal Act was to try to, uh, you know, give the public more of a say. So, um, so developers have long not liked it, but uh, in recent years, I would say in the last decade, the developers have started to take up this idea that that CEQA is really the reason that you're not getting more housing developed in California, and um, and the, and they have built an alliance with uh, the Yimbies, as you say, yes, in my backyard, folks, um, which are you know they tend to be. Um, it's it's interesting, right? Because they tend to be a lot of uh, younger progressive um, activists who want to see more housing, you know, which I think we all do. Um, and 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 they've they've kind of taken up this mantle that CEQA's part of the problem or potentially a large part of the problem. Um, I you know I have, I have a view on that, having uh, litigated in the trenches and also read all of the studies um, that CEQA is a very uh, a small part of that, um, and that there are lots of other things that are playing into the housing, uh, the the our failure to develop enough housing, but CEQA has become the, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the 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 thing to blame, but that the uh, and what it is allowing the developers to do is to get a lot of legislative exemptions 
Um, I think it remains to be seen whether any of these exemptions are are actually doing anything for mm -hmm. uh, getting us more housing, particularly affordable housing. I think the fact is that the affordable housing exemption, the infill exemption, those exemptions that have been built into sequin the last few years in response to this concern have not, the studies so far don't show that they're they're leading to any more housing. So I think the concern is by some on the more, you know, environmental side is that this is just a uh, the industry using the housing issue as a way to kind of really gut the statute. And which is something they wanted probably all along. Hmm. Um, and and you you mentioned has, has Sequa actually blocked new housing? I mean, there've been you know, and it, it's a these these few cases that make the headlines. Of mm -hmm. course, make it seem like it's it's going on everywhere. But but from what I read, there are very few instances in which Sequa has been invoked in the case of of housing. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And that's what some of these um, more independent studies are, uh, I think, showing. I, I don't know the current statistics, but it's it's just a few percent, two or three percent. First of all, of all CEQA potential matters are mm -hmm. litigated, right? Mm -hmm. So you start with that, that it's a very small percentage of. So you, if you think about it, local governments make decisions all the time, state agencies, too, and regional agencies, but particularly local governments are making decisions all the time, right? Every single one of those is potentially subject to CEQA, might be the city or county might find it to be exempted or a neg deck or whatever, but, and sometimes a full-blown EIR, but um, those are happening all the time. And only a couple of percentage of those are ever even challenged in, in court. And then I think of the, I think what the studies have shown is that, um, uh, not very many of the projects that are challenged are actually housing-related projects. I think. Mm -hmm. So the most recent things, there's a group called CEQA Works, which has done a, a, a couple of studies. And I think their most recent study, which just came out a few months ago, showed that just around, just under a quarter of all CEQA lawsuits, again, that it's not that many lawsuits, a couple hundred a year out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions that are made every year by agencies, but um, even of that small set of challenges about, uh, I think it's slightly under a quarter of them relate to something that has a housing component. It could be a whole housing development, but it could also be housing as part of a larger commercial development. Mm -hmm. So um, so when you think about those numbers, it's not, a, it's not a very big percentage out there. And the vast majority of housing projects go forward without they may be stopped for other reasons, but they go forward without a sequel challenge to them. Well, the barrier to litigation by by the public is pretty high since it costs so much to bring a case to court. Someone has to have deep pockets, right, to be able to do it. Yeah, no, that's true. So it could be. So I think one of the um, uh, the, the the one of the arguments is made is like, oh, well, wealthy communities people can afford it because right the, the those communities could afford to hire lawyers and and you know that could be true and i i can't refute specific instances i'm sure that um some of that goes on but the vast majority of secret cases are actually brought by community based groups um they don't have the resources largely to um hire lawyers and so the lawyers who take on those cases are usually doing them uh, on a contingency basis. So they would only get paid if they win the case. So you can imagine the incentive. There's a lot mm. of, um, you know, smaller <laughs> firms and private practitioners. Um, and, you know, as a clinic, we do some of it for pro bono for our clients. But uh, but for most of the attorneys out there, um, they have to feel pretty confident they're going to win the case, that they have a good legal good set of legal arguments before they would take on a case for which they're not being paid and would only get paid at the end of the day. Um, so that, yeah. And, and I, I talk to groups all the time because we provide pro bono work that our students do. And so we get, of course, lots of calls and we turn around, turn away most of them. And so most of those community groups don't have the resources to hire a lawyer. So um, it, it you know, that that's, it isn't like, again, it's not to say there aren't, you know, some wealthy people who might not want the 
housing development next door. Maybe they're funding some of this in, you know, Atherton's and the Los Altos and Palo Altos of the world, but um, that's largely not what's going on with CEQA. Yeah, arguably, if if it were easier to to litigate, there probably would be more cases, right? More cases yeah, that's, filed. That's, you yeah. know, I mean, we we were talking about, I think, democracy of some sort, or you know, public involvement came up, right? And it's limited to making comments during the comment period, which tend to be ignored. Um, well, because of all of this hoopla. And I don't know, I know it's been in the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle a lot. I don't know about, you know, the other big newspapers. Um, and I don't know what's going on online. Um, the, the governor and legislature have made noises about streamlining, stream, streamlining CEQA in order to remove this obstacle, so-called obstacle to housing development. What is that all about? Yeah. Well, it is part of a it is part of this larger, I, I think, strategy by those who don't like CEQA. And I, I, I definitely think they have the governor's ear and the ear of many legislators. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting at the federal level where everyone is paralyzed. Right. And no, none of the old laws like NEPA have been touched for decades now. CEQA uh, is is really different. The California legislature operates in a different way and is is actually quite responsive to, you know, whatever the moment is. And so there's been a over the years there's been a whole slew of um, uh, carve outs and exemptions built into CEQA. I don't know if you remember, but a few years back it was about sports stadiums because somehow those were so important to have that we had to like carve them out and not require CEQA for those. So what you know what was that about? It was you know, wealthy sports teams owners getting a legislative exemption. But in in the more recent years, there's been a series of small um, carve outs and exemptions. I think I mentioned a couple earlier so the, for affordable housing. If you have a certain level of affordable housing in your project or for infill development close into trans public transportation and those kind of things, which we want to encourage for density purposes. So there's been these small carve outs. And as I said, I don't think that they're being really used because that's actually not what developers want to do. You know, right. most developers yeah. don't want to develop low income housing near transit stations. They want to build high income, you know, uh, Con condos, uh, <laughs> condos. Yeah. In Palo Alto or you know, yeah, whatever. So, yeah. um, you know, so they throw in because they've got requirements to do some percentage of affordable housing will throw some of that in but those exemptions have not really you have to be it has to be a substantially affordable income project so um th they haven't really been used and now but with these trying to there's a there's a law, one law firm in particular that's generated i think three reports now they represent the heavily developer financed law firm and they've generated a bunch of studies that i think have the legislature has um, looked at those and said, well, we should do more streamlining. So even more than, than, than we've done so far. And so there's been a number of bills to um, continue to expand these carve outs. And that's a continuing fight. The governor has signed a few this year, um, but there are more potentially coming um, with bigger carve outs. So I think there is a worry about people who think of CEQA as our main public tool for keeping local governments accountable um, are worried that there's going to be this wave that washes through and really guts the statute. I don't think we're there yet with any of the legislation that's been proposed, but um, it's a thousand cuts happening right now. Yeah. What, what, what does Newsom said he wants to do? Uh, I, I, again, I looked into it and I found it a bit confusing what's, what's being done or what's, you know, been proposed. Yeah. What so, exactly? Um, well, right. So Newsom is he he has a continued to express concern that Seek was the problem. And I think we we could maybe talk about what other sources of the problem are. But yeah. you know, um he and, and so he's been he's been willing to entertain bills coming across his desk. And so there's an there's a new one. There's one right now, um, I'm trying to remember the number, A B. 1633, I think, and it, it again uh, waters down the standards and it um, makes it easier for developers to get projects through without much seek review. And it's mm -hmm. actually coupled with 
everyone's talking now about the builder's remedy. So the Affordable Housing Act, which passed a few years ago, right, as part of that, um, it's, they're now trying to tether some CEQA exemptions to that law. And that hasn't gone into effect, but it's floating somewhere in the legislature. I don't I don't do a lot of legislative work, so I'm not sure where it is in yeah, the committee. Yeah. But um, yeah, so each one is sort of a broader carve out than the last. And 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 I think the legislature, the way it's justifying that is, well, we did this a couple of years ago. We're not getting any more housing. So let's do some more carve outs, right? And make it easier um, uh, on developers and, uh, uh, you know, try to push the cities to to get these, get the sequel. And part of it is trying to um, reduce the delay. There, you know, there is a, there is a delay so going so a couple things you know if a project is if the sequel claims are not good claims you're just not going to see that much litigation because people aren't getting paid to do those i mean like i said occasionally yes but not really so you know the first question is are are we seeing a, a lot of sequel lawsuits that are uh losers you know that would eventually be thrown out of court so i say no but even so there is a written into the law itself that CEQA cases are supposed to be expedited. You know, that's all to protect the developers. Mm -hmm. And most counties of any size, I think if you're over a couple hundred thousand um, residents, you you're supposed to have a CEQA judge who has expertise in CEQA and who keeps cases moving through the system. Right. So and so, in fact, if if they're not good CEQA claims, they'll get thrown out relatively soon. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you couple those things together. It just the the worry that there's just delay and delay going on, I think, is not again, could happen in individual cases, but generally across the board is not what's happening. But part of the legislation and the legislative reform is to like we got to keep streamlining make it go faster forcing the agencies to get these documents done more quickly or to, to invoke more exemptions and get them through the courts more quickly so that's what m most of the reform has um been going to i i would say the developers would love to just get rid of the law altogether those who are champions of the law are fighting at the legislative level to to keep those carve outs as narrow as possible mm -hmm. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Deborah Sivas of the Stanford Law School. We've been talking about uh, CEQA and about um, the attempts, the efforts by uh, developers, I guess, to uh, get the legislature and the governor to somehow in introduce carve-outs, which would exempt housing developments from the uh, uh, requirements of CEQA. Um, you know, the poster child for all of this is the uh, is the Berkeley case, right? Of the the student housing in in uh, in uh, to the north of the north to the south of the campus. Can you can you tell us that story? I you know I don't know if everybody has heard it, and it's a a, a thought provoking one, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, yeah. So the 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 idea in Berkeley is to obviously there's a huge housing shortage in Berkeley with all those students, and that's probably true around all the big UC campuses. Um, and the idea was People's Park, which a little even predates me, and I'm <laughs> um, I've been around for a while, but um, was you know kind of a cultural icon in the '60s. Uh, uh, the 60s UC Berkeley movement and um but that park at my understanding and I don't get to Berkeley all that often but my understanding is that park has been you know pretty much a haven for um you know lots of uh how do you put it you know uh, drug activity and other things um in recent years and so the the university has proposed to develop it into student housing seems like a good thing and some neighbors have then used sequel, then used sequa to try to um, uh, to to try to slow down that development. And one of the issues that they raised was that if you put student housing there, students are noisy, and that's going to have a noise impact on the neighborhood. Which to me was a whole silly thing, and I actually didn't think that case was going to go very far when it was first signed because you know, of course, 
considerations of noise impacts are important, but, you know, I think of it like you're building an airport next to the, you know, next to the neighborhood, there's a noise impact, you know, mm -hmm. students, mm -hmm. late night partying, but so it gets this, you know, it got in, and a judge found it. And I won't say, I won't, cause I don't know all the intricacies of the study, the, the studies that were done, but um, it has now worked its way up to the California Supreme Court. That issue is now pending and has been briefed before the California Supreme Court. Um, but it has become the poster child. And just about a week ago, I think Governor Newsom signed a bill that would exempt it from, and not just that project, but, but housing projects around universities. Around universities, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What what I thought was interesting about this is that you know, CEQA says something about about pollution, I guess, um, or it was used in cases of of air pollution. So some bright bulb created the meme that people are pollution because they're the ones who are making the noise, and that's found to be an impact under CEQA, right? Um, I thought that was. Yeah, people, people are pollution. Right? Interesting, right? Yeah. yeah. I well, mean, it seems it seems kind of silly, but it was holding up a project. But as as I said, it um, I I feel like there's a few of these cases out there, and those are the right, things that the right. industry can glom onto and say, "Oh, now we've got to change the law," as as opposed to kind of letting the process play out. Um, and, and so, you know, what you get in this case is a legislative reaction specifically to that one case. You know, we're going to exempt University of California and Cal State, probably, I don't know if it covers community colleges, but housing around schools, right? But the the problem with that approach is that every time there's a, a poster child case, then there's a legislative reaction on that yeah, point. Yeah, right? And then pretty yeah. soon you've got all kinds of stuff littering the law with all these specific um, exemptions. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's no reason in my view to think that the, that Berkeley will actually get around to building the housing after all of this time, right? It certainly is something that we see here in Santa Cruz at the university. Um, you mentioned that there are other, other factors that are more important in obstructing uh, housing development. Can you just mention those briefly? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it is true. I think if anyone who's follow anyone who for anyone who's following the housing situation that you you see these at more affluent communities who don't who don't want a lot more housing. Right. right. And and they're um, often their city councils are uh, denying approvals to projects or or making trying to make it more oner onerous in terms of the, the conditions they're putting on projects. But, you know, to, that is not CEQA happening. That is like local politics happening yeah, right yeah, and right. um uh and and so that that's my frustration is that we're blaming an environmental law that that i know as having used it a lot for environmental justice concerns is the, about the only tool that environmental justice communities have to actually try to protect themselves and i could give you i could talk to you all, all day about cases that we've done where that's exactly what we're doing is trying to protect those communities um, but, you know, in these affluent cities, and, and that's that's what's going on, is it's more politics than anything. I would say the one other thing, to the extent this is happening a lot in Southern California, which was um, developed later than a lot of Northern California, although I, I'm sure it's here too in parts of the Bay Area and parts of Santa Cruz, is that a lot of that subdivision housing that was developed in the 50s and 60s actually has... Um, deed restrictions written into those documents, which I did not even realize this until a few years ago, that say single family housing is all that can be built, right? And so a local government can't even really override that with higher density housing because that's written into the deed on the land. So, you know, those are really the things that we should be looking at, both the politics, but also, you know, some of these other land use restrictions and rather than in my mind rather than gutting a pretty useful environmental law uh, on, on the excuse that that's what's actually holding up housing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well um we're we're running out of time so I, I was wondering what what do you think is likely to happen with and to sequa in the in the future yeah well you know i think it depends on who you talk to so i have some 
colleagues who are very pessimistic, we're going to see CEQA, you know, completely overridden. I'm not that pessimistic. I do think that these, some of these uh, reforms will continue on for the next um, few years. But, uh, I, you know, there is a vanguard of folks in Sacramento who do the lobbying stuff who are, you know, pretty protective of the st statute. So I don't think it's going to go away. And I, I do think, you know, more analysis of how it's actually used to protect communities. Um, and, you know, we actually saw it in connection with a, a, a proposed development in the old um, Cargill salt uh, flats uh, uh, here off the peninsula, where at one point a couple years ago, they were proposing to put 25, uh, sorry, 12,000 single family homes. And a lot of the like out into the bay, right? And a lot of the uh, groups were threatening CEQA uh, uh, challenges to that and that back that project off. Could It may come back, I guess. But that was exactly the opposite because those groups were arguing we need high-density housing on the land, not infill yeah, that puts a bunch yeah. of, um, you know, sprawling single-family residents. So, uh, you know, so hopefully it will stay around for those kind of situations and, and the true environmental situations where pollution and air pollution, water pollution and things. But I do think there'll be more, um, more streamlining. Some of that will go on. Mm. Well, is there anything you'd like to add, maybe that we we didn't cover? No, I think we we pretty much covered the waterfront. I I would just <laughs> say that we probably need more. We probably need a, even more analyses of how you know how CEQA, um, maybe how CEQA is actually effective at uh, protecting communities, um, low income communities. Right. This is all about low income housing. Well. I think low-income communities, the client groups I work with, they would be devastated to see CEQA um, gutted. So mm -hmm. I think maybe more visibility of that issue. All right. Well, Professor Deborah Sivas, thank you so much for being my guest on Sustainability Now. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm glad you're working on this topic. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksqd.org slash slash sustainability now and Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, amongst other podcast sites. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make K-Squid your community radio station and keep it going. And so, until next every other Sunday, sustainability now.